What's up, Mexican-American lit class? ¿Qué onda? ¿Cómo van? ¿Cómo están? ¿Qué onda? How you guys doing? This is Electric powwow by A Tribe Called Red. It's supposed to mimic a grass song, which is... A grass song is the sound of wind moving through the grass. Not the way I hear wind moving through the grass. But it's kind of the way I want to hear wind moving through the grass, right? The original creators of the grass dance and the purpose of the dance are widely contested. Sources attribute possible origins to the Omaha, Pawnee, Ponca, Dakota, or Winnebago tribes. While the specific tribe of origin is unknown, it is generally accepted as a Northern Plains dance that was used by warrior societies. There are several stories behind the origins of the grass dance. One is that a medicine man told a handicapped boy to seek inspiration in the prairie. There he observed the swaying of the grass and received a vision of himself dancing the same style as the grass. When he shared this vision with his village, the use of his legs was returned to him and he performed the first grass dance. Other origins attribute the grass dance to scouts blessing and flattening the grass for a ceremony, dance, or battle. The dancers would also then tie braided grass into their belts, tying grass to the belt it is believed to have led the yarn and ribbons common today. The grass dance is a fast-paced dance, consisting of sweeping motions and symmetry. It is generally faster than northern tradition or straight-style dancing, but not as fast as a fancy dance. Like with most powwow dances, the dancer brings his foot down to tap or step on the drumbeat. Whatever the grass dancer does on one side of his body, he must also do that on the other side to create symmetry and mimic waving grass. Wide sweeping motions and tapping are also used to imitate laying down to the grass. Other movements show a warrior stalking the enemy or game through the tall grass. One dance steps Typical of this involves one foot being firmly planted on the ground while the rest of the body moves around it. This is said to show a warrior still fighting when one foot has been staked down. The main difference between the grass dance regalia and the regalia of other powwow styles is that there are very few, if any, feathers compared to bustles of most men's dances. Tangentially germane to the poems we're going to be reading for today from the desire field which we'll start off with and then Manhattan is a Lenape word and then as promised they don't love you till I love you or they don't love you like I love you rather that great homage to uh, there he goes <laughs> to the yeah yeah yes it's such a great song man a tribe called Red um, they're a lot of fun some things in the news I kind of want to uh, draw your attention toward uh, these are kind of fun because they're essentially literary things. Uh, here from The Guardian today, sales soar 2,000% for Little Princess picture book on hand washing. Parents desperate to persuade their children to keep washing their hands have been turning to Tony Ross's anarchic creation, The Little Princess, for help with sales of the picture book 
I don't want to wash my hands, booming by more than 2,000% over the last month following new hygiene advice related to the coronavirus outbreak. First published in 2001, the children's book follows the little princess as she's asked to wash her hands repeatedly after playing outside, playing with her dog, going on her potty, and sneezing. Why, said the little princess, because of germs and nasties, said the maid. Publisher Andrew Press, Anderson Press rather, said that it had seen, quote, unprecedented demand for the book with sales increasing more than 2,000% from February to March in 2020. It has placed an immediately an immediate hasty reprint of the title. Uh, not a bad book to, uh, to get into if you have a little one, if you're trying to convince them to wash your hands. Um, I realized recently that I'm washing my hands wrong. Like, I, that's kind of gross to say. Maybe I, it's good I'm saying this through the internet, and not like in person. Like, nobody wants to check my hand out. But, like, you know, I watched the tutorial video and I was like, fuck, that's really thorough, man. I never, uh, I, I wasn't washing my hands that way. But now I am. You live and learn, right? You get old. You get old and you, and you learn things. It's a great part about being young and dumb is you, uh, you can discover new things and things are fun to learn, like washing your hands. Anyway, that's for sale. The book is called. Little Princess? No, 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 no. What is it called? I don't want to wash my hands. 2,000% sales, man. That's awesome. Uh, in other news, Powell's, Portland's beloved indie bookstore, will lay off most of its workers. Uh, if you guys aren't f already familiar, Powell's is a uh, powerhouse in the book world. One of the largest uh, and biggest movers volume-wise of uh, books, both independent and commercial, uh, in the United States. In response to the coronavirus outbreak, Portland, Oregon's beloved Powell's Books is laying off most of its employees in the coming days. The indie bookstore's owner and CEO, Emily Powell, sent its workers a letter Tuesday night announcing the layoffs during, quote, these unprecedented and grievous times. Quote, when we closed our doors, we also closed off the vast majority of our business without any prospect of returning soon, she said in the letter. As a result, we have been forced to make the unthinkable decision to lay off the mass vast majority of of you in the coming few days the news comes just days after powell's announced it was temporarily closing its five locations through march 31st out of concern for the safety of its employees and the community by midweek major indie bookstores across the nation had collectively laid off more than 600 employees as a response to the coronavirus outbreak according to publishers weekly um yeah does anybody else get the vibe that, like, maybe they're just firing people? Like, they're just using it as an excuse to just fire people? I think about this a lot because it's like, I feel like, you know, oil and gas does this all the time. We know this living in Houston that, like, you know, the market gets, like, a little bit of a sneeze or something or a little bit of a hiccup, and suddenly they just start laying off people. But it's not even out of any kind of, like, real uh, need so much as it's sort of like it's a convenient time to do it. It's like a socially acceptable or maybe... Um, uh, I don't know, some kind of, you know, way in which they can sort of offload a bunch of people. But 85% of its people, that's a lot of the workforce. That's a lot of the independent book industry. And uh, it sort of underscores a lot of what we've been talking about in this class with the idea that, like, you know, the book industry is still an industry. I think about this in the context. We talked about this in, a little bit in the context of American Dirt uh, in that, you know, that like just like any other industry, it's an industry. It's a corporation. It's a, the book industry is a sort of set of, you know, organizing bodies. They don't really care about you. <laughs> they don't care about its workers. They care about money. At the end of the day, uh, but this is ultimately a bad thing for literature. I think um, usually it's a, you know, that's it's uh, independent bookstores are sort of the lifeblood of uh, of a lot of uh, independent presses like Grey Wolf, which is the uh, the publisher of Natalie Diaz's 
post-colonial love poem. It's the book we're reading right now, but also a lot of other books too, you know, Grove Press, um, you know, Coffeehouse Press, Arte Publico, which is my press, right? To this end, go support your independent bookstores. We still have one that's up and functioning and it's really healthy right now, Brazos Bookstore here in Houston. Definitely go ahead and give them some money. I think they're doing online orders right now. I think I just checked with them yesterday. They're out of post-colonial love poem, but if for some reason uh, you are able to sort of, I don't know, I know Amazon's not delivering... Um, I don't know. Get in touch with Brazos, man. <laughs> support them. Throw some money their way. Support your local businesses. Uh, make sure they don't lay off 85% of their staff. That's fucking bananas. All right. Let's get into the poems. Today we're reading, like I mentioned earlier, uh, from The Desire Field, uh, which is on page 12. Manhattan is a Lenape word, which, let me flip to the book. Page 14, nice. Uh, and then they don't love you like I love you which is page 19. So um, if you have the book in front of you, go ahead and open that up, follow along, uh, and definitely uh, scan along as we do it. Cool? Let's start with From the Desire Field, uh, which is tangentially kind of germane, as I mentioned earlier, to the sort of opening song, A Tribe Called Red's Electric Powwow. From the Desire Field. I don't call it sleep anymore. I'll risk losing something new instead. Like you lost... Your rosen moon shook it loose. But sometimes, when I get my horns in a thing, I wonder a grief or a line of her. It is a sticky and ruined fruit to unfasten from. Despite my trembling, let me call my anxiety desire, then. Let me call it a garden. Maybe this is what Lorca meant when he said, Verde que te quiero verde. Because when the shade of night comes, I am a field of it, of any worry ready to flower in my chest. My mind in the dark is una bestia, unfocused, hot, and if not yoked to exhaustion. Beneath the hip and plow of my lover, then I am another night wandering in the desire field, bewildered in its low green glow, belling the meadow between midnight and morning. Insomnia is like spring that way, surprising and many-petaled. The kick and leap of gold grasshoppers at my brow, I am stuck in the witched hours of want. I want her green life, her inside me. In a green hour, I can't stop. Green vein in her throat, green wing in my mouth, green thorn in my eye. I want her like a river goes bending, green, moving, green, moving. Fast is that. This is how it happens. Soy una sonambula. And even though you said today you felt better, and it is so late in this poem, is it okay to be clear, to say, I don't feel good? To ask you to tell me a story about the sweet grass you planted, and tell it again, or again, until I can smell its sweet smoke. Leave this thrashed field and be smooth. It's a great poem. A lot of grass imagery. We talked earlier about the grass song uh, and a lot of sort of uh, foliage imagery. Um, also a lot of imagery that sort of has um, shadows of, of, of desire, shadows of anxiety, shadows of... You could argue sort of like um, a kind of self-loathing. 
self-loathing, if that makes any sense. And we'll talk about that in a second. And I don't mean like self-hate. What I mean is like a, a kind of um, an anxiety or sort of preoccupation with the way in which, uh, you know, this relationship is fraught. Maybe it comes from the persona. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But first, what I want you to do is I want you to take just a second, go down the page, and think of any words or see if any words that jump out to you. What are some images? What are some lines? For me, there are some really interesting ones. The kick and leap of gold grasshoppers at my brow. It's a very specific image, right? Another grass image. I am stuck in the witch towers of want. The witch towers, why are they witched, right? This, uh, this um, line from Lorca, verde, que te quiero verde. Lorca is a Spanish poet, and it means green. I want you green, right? What does that mean, though? Just go down the page and just sort of mark what are the, what are the lines that don't make sense to you, or what are the sort of the images that just do make sense? Maybe they jump out to you and you feel really good about them. To make a little note, there's, there's a little space at the bottom of page 13. You can kind of jot that stuff down and sort of dialogue with the poem. Whenever I go and move throughout a poem, I'm always dialoguing with it. I always sort of like look at the things that jump out to me. And remember that a poem is not a riddle. You're not supposed to solve a poem, uh, but you're supposed to sort of take the poem on its own terms. What is it trying to reveal to you, right? Uh, and oftentimes we can sort of look at the revelation in the Volta, right, the last few lines of the poem, the way, the way in which the poem is, it turns, right, a, vol, a Volta is the Italian word for the turn, uh, much like in Spanish, the Vuelta, right? So just go ahead and take uh, a second, jot everything down, and uh, I'll give you guys two seconds. All right, that was two seconds. You like that little drum tap? That means, like, time has passed. So let's read this poem one more time. What does this poem mean, right? First, let's start with the Spanish words. The ones that jump out to me immediately are una bestia. What is una bestia? A beast, right? Possibly has connotations of that migrant train, but not in this context, not really. Um, verde, que te quiero verde. That means green, I want you green. Uh, invoking Lorca the Spanish poet uh, who was killed by the fascist under Franco this in the uh, 1920s. Um, the other ones I'm looking at, sonambula. What is a sonambula? It's a sleepwalker, right? Fast as that, this is how it happens. Soy una sonambula. I am a sleepwalker, right? Um, what are the other ones? Looking. Did we get them all? I think we got them all, man. Cool. So from here, I mean, why use Spanish in these contexts? I, I do find the use of code switching kind of interesting here. Um, especially as she's sort of like, um, you know, invoking this, this idea of the desire field, right? The title of the poem. Remember that the title of a poem is also part of the poem as well, right? So we can sort of triangulate that this this poem is about desire also about anxiety for me the center of the poem the one that really sets everything else up is this couplet that is one two three four five stanzas down let me call my anxiety desire then let me call it a garden right 
So she's using her anxiety as a metaphor for desire, right? Or a simile, right? These two, this thing is like another thing, two unlike things. Uh, anxiety is similar to desire. Uh, and then she's using that further, um, further using that as a metaphor to sort of talk about it in, as a metaphor for the garden, right? Let me call it a garden, right? And so all of this garden imagery, all of this green imagery is really interrogating um, desire and anxiety uh, and the ways in which desire and anxiety are sort of like inextricably interlinked within the mind of this persona. I don't call it sleep anymore. I'll risk losing something new instead. Like Lou, you lost your rosin moon, shook it loose. But sometimes when I get my horns in a thing, I wonder a grief or a line of her. It is a sticky and ruined fruit to unfasten from. Right? You can imagine this persona sort of being in deep sleep, or sort of not deep sleep rather, but being in sort of, I don't call it sleep anymore. It's just some, something like um, this existence, this being, this sort of like anxiety, uh, insomnia rather. And she's sort of like in this moment where she's highly destructive. At the very bottom of the page, she says, I am struck in the witched hours of want, right? There's a kind of inference there to the witching hour, which um, it's 3 a.m., I mean, sort of like a, a colloquial term for sort of deep, dark, early in the morning, midnight almost, right? 3 a.m., uh, the witching hour. Uh, also, they say, I think, I don't know, I read, I read this somewhere, but I don't know if this is true, I'm just saying this. Um, the photo negative, which is the 12 hours from 3 p.m., which is when they say Jesus Christ was um, crucified under Pilate. But anyways, despite my trembling, I'm here at the top of the first page, let me call my anxiety desire then. Let me call it a garden. Maybe this is what Lorca meant when he said, verde, que te quiero verde. Because when the shade of night comes, I am a field of it, of any worry ready to flower in my chest. And so here she gives us this image of like these lush green garden that maybe looks beautiful but is this really sort of field of worries of blooming worries right that are at once sort of you know they can be really kind of intriguing or beautiful but they're also sort of like kind of um, scary at the same time we also get this sort of violent imagery uh, in the third stanza of the poem but sometimes when I get my horns in a thing right think of like a ram or something just like batting this thing I wonder a grief or a line of her, it is a sticky and ruined fruit to unfasten from. You think of something just like pulverizing, uh, uh, you know, a fruit, right? She, it's interesting that she calls it like a fruit. Um, one thinks of that um, that song, you know, strange fruit falling or strange fruit uh, hanging from a tree, which is um, sort of uh, uh, an interrogation of sort of like lynchings and hangings. But this idea that it's a kind of violent resonance that's coming out of there um and we and we know that she sort of has this anxiety because she keeps talking about this sort of like um other violent imagery um i want her green life her inside me in green hour i can't stop green vein in her throat green wing in my mouth you get these almost like grotesque images but almost like these biological sort of um almost semblances of like if you've ever read uh sylvia legree or something like that um which is sort of deals with a lot of anatomy and a lot of sort of like the body. Um, but we also get that this other image here beneath the hip and plow of my lover. Then I am another night wandering 
the desire field, right? It's sort of a sexual image, right? You think of this plowing, you think beneath the hip. Um, but there's also this sort of like a kind of inferred violence. Then I am another knight wandering the desire field, right? The knight is sort of like, I, I did wonder if this was like a pun, right? Uh, between knight, you know, at night, and obviously she's sort of a, um, in this, uh, you know, witching hour. But it's also the knight in terms of sort of like a knight in shining armor. And we talked a little bit about sort of the hybridity of of um, of a lot of these personas that uh, Diaz is working with. Um, these protagonists who are split or sort of bifurcated between two cultures. But then with this one, sort of blending this image of like the European knight with the desire field, um, which as we discussed earlier in A Tribe Called Red, is this sort of like this battle dance, right? Um, and this is a kind of battle dance, right? Bewildered in its low green glow, bellying the meadow between midnight and morning. Insomnia is like spring that way, surprising and many-petaled. The kick and leap of gold grasshoppers at my brow. I am stuck in the witch hour of want. I want her green life, her inside me. In a green hour, I can't stop. Green vein in her throat, green wing in my mouth. Again, going back to this sort of like the way in which love and affection and the sexual imagery is also right next to this grotesque and the sort of like violent and uh, the kind of like anxiety of, of sort of like pulverization, right? Green thorn in my eye. I want her like a river goes, bending. Green, moving, green, moving. Fast as that, this is how it happens. Soy una sonambula, a sleepwalker, right? And so even though you said today you felt better and it is so late in this poem, is it okay to be, cl to be clear to say, I don't feel good? And this is where we get the turn of the poem. To ask you to tell me a story about the sweet grass you planted and tell it again or again. Right? That sweet grass takes on a really specific imagery, a really specific, um, almost kind of like, you know, it's it's not it's not the flowers, it's not a thorn, but it's sweet grass, right? It's something very low to the ground, has those resonances of imagery or of a of um like, you know, the grass song or you know, sort of like a war imagery. But also it's 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 sweet, right? And it's something that's um, planted by the lover, right? Um, and it's kind of you get the vibe that it's almost like you would paper over something. She's talking about like almost like grassing over something. Until I can smell its sweet smoke, leave this thrashed field and be smooth. And she leaves us with that kind of violent image. But I think what this poem is about, or I think what it's really interrogating, and it's called the from the desire field. This um, way in which the interpersonal, right, between even intimacy, right, between oneself and, and a lover, for, say, for instance, um, is really a product and a manifestation of this, um, this uh, garden of, of bloom, right? Um, I do think that it's really interesting that, you know, as she talks about anxiety as a garden, uh, we get this idea, the first time we see this, um, the persona's interest, the subject, is, she says, um, I'll risk losing something new instead like you lost your rosin moon shook it loose right what does that mean i think the inference here is that if you there is a native american um 
kind of like myth. You see this a lot in Lenape. You also see this a lot in um, Ojibwe cultures where the moon is a feminine energy. The sun is a masculine energy. And they're forever chasing each other around. Um, and when she's talking about the rosin moon, I wonder if what she's talking about is sort of the photo negative of that, which is the sun, which would make sense in the context of something like green, right? We have like photosynthesis, you know, they're symbiotic. There's this sort of like, or rather just um, not symbiotic, not parasitic either. But you know, the, the grass is able to grow because of, right, the sun. Um, and so uh, she talks about this idea, right? In the first paragraph, I don't call it sleep anymore. I'll risk losing something new instead. What does that mean to lose, to lose something new? Right? Like you lost your rose and moon, shook it loose. But sometimes when I get my horns in a thing, I wonder, a grief or a line of her, it is a sticky and ruined fruit to unfasten from. I wonder if what she's talking about here, um, the persona, is this fear of intimacy. Like, fear of, you know, I'll risk losing you like you lost your rose and moon. Um, there's kind of like this um, defiance there. Like, well, if you were able to do it, I can do it too. And, you know, but there's this kind of realization too that, you know, she needs her. And I think so much of this poem is exploring that um, almost like photosynthesis needs the sun. You know, this persona definitely needs this other person. But also that fear of intimacy is what stymies the growth or perhaps what's sort of violent about it, right? And so um, you can really see I think Natalie Diaz's uh, sort of struggle to sort of you come up with an accurate metaphor and she says maybe this is what Lorca meant when he said verde get the quiero verde green I want you green because when the shade of night comes I am a field of it any worry ready to flower in my chest right and she's saying you know this these these worries you know this is there's something sort of almost um draconian or or uh you know, this relationship with you is, is, is bad for me, but I need it, essentially. Um, I think that, that sort of resonates at the end here with the uh, with the Volta. To ask you to tell me a story about a sweet grass you planted and tell it again or again until I can smell its sweet smoke, leave this thrashed field and be smooth, right? Is a thrashed field something pleasant? You think of a thrashed field like a battlefield or something, or something that's been completely just obliterated, Right? or burned, right? Which would make sense with that sun imagery. But what she's asking for is this sort of like, you know, the Volta is exploring this almost like the idea of like numbness, right? Um, this thrashed field, a field devoid of green, a field devoid of, you know, she talks about the smoke, the sweet smoke, ah, you know. And um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, but I like it because it invokes um, not only this imagery of sort of like green, but also sort of the way in which you know, it speaks toward those grass songs, right? Which are battle songs, which in this context would make sense, right? If you have these two characters who are lovers who are really, you know, sort of at war with each other, and but they need it. So there's like a symbiotic something there. Um, you know, she's exploring the way in which uh, that inner relationship is fraught. And I think she, throughout this poem, she's really searching for uh, a metaphor for it. Um, but anyways, she settles on sort of the, the sun, green photosynthesis, the anxieties of worry, right? Anxieties that bloom. Um, I think it's a cool poem, especially when we think about it. It's, it's, it's an interesting metaphor. The anxiety um, as a garden that keeps blooming. Dig it.
All right, let's move on to Manhattan is a Lenape word. Lenape is a language. Uh, actually, that's a good, hold on. That's a really good, uh, I just realized I, I don't know actually which tribe that comes from. I'm going to Google this real quick. Googler. The Lenape, also called the Leni Lenape, Leni Lenape and Delaware people, are an indigenous people of the northeastern woodlands who live in Canada and the United States. Their historical territory included present-day New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania along the Delaware River watershed, uh, Del Water Gap, right? New York City, western Long Island, and the lower Hudson Valley. Today, Lenape people belong to the Delaware Nation and Delaware Tribe of Indians in Oklahoma, the Stockbridge Muncie community in Wisconsin, and the Muncie Delaware Nation, Morovian of the Th of the Thames, First Nation, and Delaware of Six Nations in Ontario. The Lenape have a matrilineal clan system. That's kind of cool. And historically, were matrilocal. Uh, what is matrilocal? Into social anthropology, matrilocal local residence or matrilocality locality is the societal system in which married couples reside with or near the wife's parents. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Couldn't imagine, right? The Lenape have a matrilineal clan system, practice matrilineal locality. During the decades of the 18th century, most Lenape were pushed out of their homelands by expanding European colonies their dire situation was exacerbated worsened by losses from intertribal conflict the divisions and troubles of the american revolutionary war and the united states independence pushed them further west in the 1860s the united states government sent most lenape remaining in the eastern united states to the indian territory present-day oklahoma and surrounding territory under the indian removal policy in the 21st century most lenape now reside in oklahoma with some communities living in wisconsin and ontario all right so there we go lenape people most manhattan is a lenape word remember that the title of a poem is also part of the poem let's go ahead and read it we're on page 14. It is December, and we must be brave. The ambulance's rose of light blooming against the window. Its single siren cry, help me. A silk-red shadow unbolting like water through the orchard of her thigh. Her, come, in the green night, a lion. I sleep her bees with my mouth of smoke, dip honey with my hands, Stung sweet on the darksome hive. Out of the eater I eat, meaning she is mine, colony. The things I know aren't easy. I'm the only Native American on the eighth floor of this hotel, or any, looking out any window of a turn-of-the-century building in Manhattan. Manhattan is a Lenape word. Even a watch must be wound. How can a century or a heart turn if nobody asks, where have all the natives gone? If you are where you are, then where are those who are not here? Not here. Which is why in this city I have many lovers. All my loves are reparations loves. When what is loneliness, if not unimaginable, light and measured in lumens, an electric bill which must be paid, a taxicab across three lanes with its lamp lit, gold in wanting. At 2 a.m., everyone in New York City is empty and asking for someone. Again, the siren's same wide note, help me, meaning I have a gift, 
and it is my body, made two-handed of gods and bronze. She says, you make me feel like lightning. I say, I don't ever want to make you feel that white. It's too late. I can't stop seeing her bones. I'm counting the carpels, metacarpels, of her hand inside mine, or inside me. One bone, the lunate bone, is named for its crescent outline, lunatus, luna. Some nights she rises like that in me, like trouble, a slow, luminous flux. The street lamp beckons the lonely coyote wandering West 29th Street by offering its long wrist of light. The coyote answers by lifting its head and crying stars. Somewhere far from New York City, an American drone finds then loves a body. The radiant nectar it seeks through great darkness makes a candle hour of it and burns gently along it like American touch, an unbearable heat. The siren's song returns in me. I sing it across her throat. Am I what I love? Is this the glittering world I've been begging for? Holy shit. Uh, some nice or drone imagery there. And at the end, end which we're going to talk about in just a second. I'm talking about like a drone, though. The one that finds people and then just shoots things at it. I want to point your attention toward... Um, this connection, though, even within this poem, but then the other poems we've read today, and then uh, really the ones we read for last time, too, this connection between the body and the land. Um, I'd explain it myself, but I actually think Natalie Diaz sets it up quite nicely in talking about American arithmetic, but I think it's germane to this poem uh, as well. Let's listen to her. One of the questions I'm asking in this poem it has a lot to do with, with visibility and invisibility. And that last line there is... My question about, can I possibly subvert my invisibility? So for example, love, tenderness, pleasure, sexuality, those are some of the more intimate ways that I might be able to subvert the gaze of America or the Western gaze that's often placed on indigenous or native peoples. And so what does it mean to be visible through pleasure, but also what are the ways that, that I can stay private and intimate and, and whole in ways that America can't necessarily surveil me. I mean, and the numbers you're using here are so stark in the way that you're using them, too, to almost talk about being less than a person. It's one of those paradoxes, you know, how we've been fractioned or divided by country or nation. I really was questioning, can I use those statistics in a way that doesn't always make me less than, or can I find another side of those statistics to be present in a way that's unexpected? So you're Mojave, a registered member of the Gila River Indian tribe. You're also Latina, and you grew up along the Colorado River. So much of your identity, all these parts of your identity, are woven into the poetry. What were the themes that you wanted to convey? The largest theme or question or inquiry I was making was, you know, in Mojave, body and land are the same, you know, imat, amat. When we're talking about either in our language, we say the word mat. And so it's a different way of carrying oneself when you know that you're connected to something much larger than you. I wanted to kind of bring those questions. What does it mean to to think of loving every body that I come in contact with? Um, the body of a beloved, the body of, of land in general, you know, my river as a body. And I think primarily 
who I wanted to love the most was my own. And the way that I did that was to let me be all of the things I am. Mm -hmm. There's also within your book a lot that you write about, um, about water and the connection of body and water. One of those poems, The First Water is the Body. I was wondering if you could read a passage from it. If I was created to hold the Colorado River, to carry its rushing inside me, if the very shape of my throat, of my thighs, is for wetness, how can I say who I am if the river is gone? What does hamakav mean if the river is emptied to the skeleton of its fish and the miniature sand dunes of its dry, silton beds? If the river is a ghost, am I? Unsoothable thirst is one type of haunting. In this poem, you describe to us how deep the connection is between the physical river and the body. And the Colorado River is drying up. For so long, people who don't live off the land, you know, they haven't really understood maybe that connection. And I just wonder now that climate change and water and the earth is part of this daily conversation in politics, what is it like to see it go mainstream? I mean, it's frustrating, right? You want to say like, finally. However, I also think there's something in it that has always been in many Native communities. I know it's definitely been in the community I was raised in, in that we have always seen the connection. Mm -hmm. And for me, I know that I'm a part of something. I'm responsible for something in the same way that life, that earth, that water is also responsible for me. I feel so lucky, one, to be working with my my elders and my teacher in particular, um, Hubert McCord or Amatchumich Mahakiev is his Mojave name, because I feel like if they spent a few hours with him and could hear him talk about what the Colorado River means to us, that it's running through our body, that we are made of it, that it belongs to us as much as we belong to it. I feel like they would never look at a river the same way again. Mm. I feel like they would never think that the river is not something that they must take care of. Is that what you're trying to do with this poetry, is to share all that you have in that way? I wish I could take a little more credit for the trying part. I think it's all I actually have to offer. Um, and I think, you know, the way I was taught is that you try to dream what you have to dream. I mean, we say that, we say, and it means that, you know, it means to dream well, but it doesn't mean like to go to bed at night and sleep. It means that there are things waiting for you that you will arrive at and you must do them, you know, because they've been dreamed for you. There's an energy there. I don't know where the gift of poetry came from, but I do know it's in me and it's mine. And I don't know that I have a lot of, you know, hopes or or necessarily intentions other than to say, these are the things that are in me that I'm thinking about or wondering about. Mm -hmm. And if I let them out, somehow they might connect with someone else's energies and maybe we can all have like a better tomorrow at some point. Natalie Diaz is a poet and author of Postcolonial Love Poem. She spoke to us from member station KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you for sharing your poems with us. Yeah, gracias a ti for your time. All right. So first of all, with this poem, I want to start with this um, concept that she brings up, imat amat, that the land is the body, right? And to that end, I'm interested in the way in which she's talking about not only landscapes as in 
which we think about him in sort of like an organic way, like a field or something. Um, but she's talking about Manhattan, right? Even the cityscape as an extension of the body, right? And, and then she's invoking this idea that, you know, Manhattan isn't enough by word, that the land is still there beneath all the concrete and the skyscrapers and all that stuff. She writes, The ambulance's rose of light blooming against the window, its single siren cry, Help me! A silk-red shadow unbolting like water. We get that water imagery, right? Through the orchard of her thigh. Again, that conflation of something that's happening in nature, not necessarily the natural world, sort of like um, the natural world meaning, uh, you know, nature per se, but, you know, the way in which it's manifesting in, in surroundings. Through the orchard of her thigh, right? Again, we get that sort of nature, the, the conflation of nature and body again. Her come in the green night a lion i sleep her bees with my mouth of smoke again that conflation dip honey with my hands stung sweet on the darksome hive out of the eater i eat meaning she is mine colony we get that sort of pun on the word colonized right the things i know aren't easy i'm the only native american on the eighth floor of this hotel or any Looking out any window of a turn-of-the-century building in Manhattan. Manhattan is a Lenape word. Even a watch must be wound. That's a nice little pun there with, you know, wound and wound. And we get into that sort of... She explores this pun in the next section. How can a century or a heart turn if nobody asks, where have all the natives gone, right? What she's doing, she's interrogating, like, genocide, Right. The wound, the wound, the turning of the clock, the revolution, the idea that even the history and the echoes of the natural world are still present in the present. If you are where you are, then where are those who are not here? Again, she's invoking the genocide. Not here, which is why in this city I have many lovers. All my loves are reparations. Loves, again, those echoes of the past into the present. The projection of sort of like the genocide of... She's sort of paralleling genocide and this sort of like, you know, this cohort of lovers that, you know, she she's had in, in uh, Manhattan, which is an interesting parallel. Um, it's an intriguing question. I might put it up on the discussion board. What does that mean? Why does she do that, right? What is loneliness if not unimaginable light and measured in lumens? An electric bill which must be paid, a taxi cab floating across three lanes with its lamp lit, Golden wanting at 2 a.m. Everyone in New York City is empty and asking for someone. Again, we get this light um, as in sort of a, a prevailing image, as a prevailing trope. We get the light in the very uh, beginning of the uh, of the uh, uh, poem, you know, when she's talking about the siren and the siren's wail, and uh, that sort of uh, she says a silk red shadow unbolting like water. You imagine this sort of like flash of red across the uh, across the room or something. Again, the sirens, same wide note, help me, meaning I have a gift, and it is my body, made two-handed, of gods and bronze. I, I've, I'm interested in this. She brings up the hands quite a bit in this, uh, in this uh, collection, and it's something we haven't really talked about, and I have to really think about it, but I'm not sure exactly what they mean yet, but she's always invoking the hands. She says, you make me feel like lightning. I say, I don't ever want to make you feel that white. It's too late. I can't stop seeing her bones. I'm cutting the carpals, metacarpals of her hand inside me. One bone, the lunate bone, is named for its crescent outline. Lunatis, Luna, 
Some night she rises like that in me, like trouble, a slow, luminous flux, right? Again, we sort of, between talking between this poem uh, and the last one, which is from the Desire Field, we get this sort of like, you know, she's also the sun and the moon. We haven't talked yet about two-spirit, the concept of two-spirit, but it's sort of like masculine and feminine energies within the same body. Um, we did talk about it briefly in Cabeza de Vaca's essay, um, and when Cabeza de Vaca comes across that, um, I think it's the Karankawa, where um, he's describing a guy and how he's sort of socially accepted, um, and he is sort of like, we talked about two-spirit in that way, and two-spirit uh, among a lot of Native American tribes is seen as this very uh, positive thing. Um, you can, if you're um, uh, a man uh, who is queer, you can, you have all the positive aspects of uh, femininity, right? You can fit in with the women, you can sew, you can collect berries, but then, you know, when you need to be, or you can care for children, but you can also go to war. And it's seen as like a very utilitarian person. But the sun and moon image is, you know, she talks about the rosin moon in the last poem, and then she talks about this sort of like, uh, there's the, that this passage we just read, which is like the lunate bone is named for its crest outline. Lunatis, Luna. Some night she rises like that in me, like trouble, a slow luminous flux. You know, the sun and the moon, feminine masculinities, but also sort of uh, sources of light, right? And sources of reflection. The street light beckons the lonely coyote wandering West 29th Street. Again, we see this fractal or this parallel, this conflation between, you know, the interrelationship of their bodies and the way it manifests in the natural world. Which brings us to this final uh, and kind of heavy, um, the vault of the poem. Somewhere far from New York City, an American drone finds, then loves a body. It's a weird way. You think of like the image of a drone hovering over a target and sort of through, um, you know, uh, what do you call that? Where it can sense heat? Um, fuck, what is that, man? Uh, not ultraviolet, but... um. This is the beauty of online. You could pause or you can look it up. Hold on. Uh, let's check this out. Um, heat sensing infrared. It's infrared. Infrared camera, right? You think of like an infrared drone hovering over it. Where it says somewhere far from New York City, an American drone finds a love, a body, the radiant nectar it seeks, right? You think of this like the blood of the body, this nectar, this sort of infrared like glowing piece in sort of a kind of a dark screen and then it kills it right a candle hour of it and burns gently along it like american touch on an unbearable heat what does she mean why does she bring this up it's such a strange way to end the poem the siren song returns to me i sing it across her throat am i what i love is this the glittering world i've been begging for right we think of New York, we think as sort of the epicenter. Everyone talks about New York as the greatest city in the world, that line from Hamilton. But it's also sort of the symbol of American empire, which is the symbol that is sort of in the ideology that largely begat genocide, right? This genocide that she sort of alludes to within the poem, but also this genocide that she's like, is this, you know, this is part of me? Is this part of my history? Is this, is that echo ringing out in the present fraught with my, my sort of the echoes of who I am and the echoes in which that, Genocide is manifested in the past. It's a legit question, right? But you can see how she's sort of interpolating all of this through just a relationship, through sort of a, a an encounter with a lover in uh, in one moment. Um, it's cool. Manhattan is a Lenape word, interrogating the history uh, of the Lenape people, interrogating the history of Manhattan as a indigenous landscape that is still indigenous despite the skyscrapers despite the concrete despite the fact that it's been papered over or concreted over and um 
largely the, the indigeneity of that land has been forgotten, but she says it still rings out in every moment within the interpersonal. Yeah? Dig it. The last poem we're going to end with today uh, is an homage to that song, They Don't Love You Like I Love You. I'm going to do the hokey thing and actually play the song because I just realized uh, some of you guys may not be familiar with it. Um, that's what you hear in the background right now. I'm actually realizing that that song is called Maps was a huge song when I was in high school. You guys don't need to know how old I am. Anyway, it's invoked here. I'll let the go ahead and continue to play as I read this poem. They don't love you like I love you. Uh, I thought about breaking this poem down, but what I think I'm going to have you guys do is respond to it in discussion. What is this poem? Read through it. What are the images? What are the things that are uh, ringing out to you? Uh, what are some... Um, what is this poem about, right? They don't love you like I love you. My mother said this to me long before Beyonce lifted the lyrics from the yeah, yeah, yeahs. And what my mother meant by don't stray was that she knew all about it. The way it feels to need someone to love you, someone not your kind, someone white, someone some many who live, because so many of mine have not and further live on top of those of ours who don't. I'll say, 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 I'll say, 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 what is the United States if not a clot of clouds, if not spilled milk or blood, if not the place we once were in the millions? America is maps. Maps are ghosts, white and layered with people and places I see through. My mother has always known best, knew that I'd been begging for them, to lay my face against their white laps, to be held in something more than the loud light of their projectors, and they flicker themselves, sepia or blue, all over my body. All this time, I thought my mother said, wait, as in, give them a little more time, to know your worth when you, when really she said, wait, meaning heft, preparing me for the yoke of myself, the beast of my country's burdens, which is less worse than my country's plow. Yes, when my mother said, they don't love you like I love you, they don't love you like I love you, she meant, Natalie, that doesn't mean you aren't good. Dig it. English 3322 lives!